Corinthians, my own. My own. Yeah, there we go. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, or other translations say constrains us, compels us. In other words, it's doing something in us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, and this is uh, also what we're going to be talking about this morning, guys, in First Peter. But I just... As we get going here this morning, guys, I, I honestly, I, you know, I kind of know where I want to go today in my sermon as I was preparing today, but um, I just want to say what I wanted to say near the end at the beginning, and that is that Jesus is Lord. Amen. He is Lord. And it's foolish and it's illogical and in the end it brings pain and confusion and difficulty in our lives to not give him absolutely everything guys it just doesn't make sense Jesus paid it all and absolutely all everything we owe to him everything. And for us to worship him as he deserves, no matter how loud we sing um, or how well the worship team plays or whatever, to hold anything back just isn't worship. It's just not worship. Um, so just, just pray with me. Father, I... I just ask this morning, Lord, that you would come and that you would search our hearts. Come search our hearts, Jesus, please. Come search my heart. Father, anything in me that I hold on to, please, Lord. I, I, I don't know how else to say it, Lord, other than like I cry out against myself. Don't let me hold on to anything. Lord, you, you, because, because you were tempted in every way, just as we are, yet you were without sin, Jesus, you know what we mean when we say, Lord, I want to give you everything, but Lord, I don't know if I can give you everything. Lord, we want you to have all of us. Yeah, Lord, we know we hang on to stuff. Please, please, please be merciful to us this morning, Lord. And help us to give you all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's good morning for it, Alan. Go ahead. I've already preached my whole sermon, so I don't have anything to say. So go, go ahead.
right. Yep, it's just the truth. Yep. Amen. We need to get excited about what Jesus has done. That's right. Amen. Amen. Yeah. God is good. Uh, I've been praying a lot lately, just in my own personal life, that He would just uh, that He would interrupt my life, that He would interrupt. Um, just all my plans, and uh, you know, sometimes we, you can, uh, we can get so desperate for the spirit to move that then we can also try to manufacture something, uh, and we can't do that either. Um, but God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and guys, He does great and mighty things uh, which we cannot plan, um, and even sometimes which we cannot explain, and. And sometimes they're difficult things, but in everything, for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, he's working it all together for good uh, and all for his honor and glory um, and, our, and our joy, and our joy. Uh, if you got your Bibles, grab them and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 through 22. Uh, we'll be looking at most of this, but I'm going to come back and do kind of a part two on this next week, Lord willing. First Peter chapter three, starting in verse 13, he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Just bow your heads with me and pray one more time. Father, please, the time we have together this morning, do whatever it is that you want to do um, and open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how many of you guys know the meaning of the term or terms uh, to double down or to go or to go all in. Familiar with the term double down? Yeah, Conrad Count, who raised their hands? Those are the poker players. You know, just kidding. That wasn't a trick. Um, confession this morning, every now and then I like to watch the World Series of Poker on ESPN. Texas Hold'em, anybody? No? Okay. You're like, where is he going with this? Uh, you know, Eric, I brought a friend this morning, and you're talking about poker and gambling. No, I, um, I find it interesting. I don't know a lot about it. I still don't fully understand the game. I've never really played. I play Euchre. That's about the only card game I know. Rook, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, but, but apparently, like Texas Hold'em, Blackjack, poker, whatever, you, there's moments where you've, you, you, you can double down, and I think there's technically some sort of difference between the term double down and go all in, but I'm kind of using them synonymously. But it's the idea that you're going to stick with what you've got. And you're, you've already kind of made a wager 
towards something, but you, and you're going to stick with that. You're going to double that wager, or eventually you're, you're going to go all in. You're going to push everything you've got to the middle of the table. And I, uh, of course, you guys know that I, I, I ask for a little bit of grace in that illustration. I'm not comparing the Christian life to playing poker or to Texas Hold'em. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. The longer I follow Jesus, the more I find it to be true that over and over and over and over and over again, you've got to double down on your faith in him. You've got to double down. You've got to go all in on who he says he is, what he says he'll do, um, and decide that you're not changing, that you're not going to fold. You're going to stick with the confession that you've made that he is Lord. Does anybody follow me? Get a witness? Um, and I think that early on in my Christian life, you know, when you come to Jesus, in, in some sense, although you, you may not use that language, you're saying that. You're saying, Jesus, I, 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 give you, I give you everything. And I think what I didn't realize early on and what I think many people don't realize early on, and, and it's okay that you don't. That's why we're here, and hopefully this will help this morning. But, folks, it's not just a one-time decision. It's not just a one-time prayer. And I want to be clear here. There, 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 for, to be sure, there is a moment of salvation. There is a moment where you are born again. There is a moment where you trust in Jesus and you once were in the kingdom of darkness and you were transferred to the kingdom of light. You once were not his son, but you are born again and you become his child. But just because you make that decision one time doesn't mean that you're going to have to again double down and go all in and say, Jesus, I trust you again. And one of the biggest things that will bring that out is difficulty in our lives. When relationships don't work out the way that we thought that they would, when people that we really looked up to and that were an example to us kind of uh, fall away or move away from the faith, you're going to have to double down when you, you know, you've tried and you've tried and you've tried in your marriage to kind of work things out, but things are still difficult. And you want to give up because you're going, Jesus, I'm, I'm crying out to you about this, Lord. I'm praying about this, Lord. Why aren't you fixing about this? And it just seems like the answer that you want doesn't come immediately. You've got to double down again. You know, Peter experienced this in the Gospels. You guys remember when Jesus, he just said some really hard things. Man, Jesus was not here to tickle anybody's ears. And at one point in John chapter 6, he, he begins to tell the crowds, and of course the disciples, they're following Jesus. They've been, you know, set, set apart as the, the 12 to to minister with him, and he was going to send them out and, and, you know, eventually begin the church through them, through the power of the Spirit. But, you know, so they're following Jesus around, and this is a pretty good deal. Like, he's pretty popular, and so they're kind of popular by extension because they're part of Jesus' inner circle. But then Jesus begins to say some really hard things. Things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And the crowds begin to murmur, and, and, and they begin to say, you know, this is, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And it says that many of them from that time forward turned away and did not follow him any longer. And then Jesus, he, he turns to Peter and to the 12. And he says, do you want to go too? And in that moment, by God's grace, Peter doubled down. He said, Lord, there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> you, have, you have the words of eternal life. Uh, and of course, in that moment, you know, Peter had, he's such a, an example of highs and lows of moments like that where he just gets at moments where he confesses that, you know, Jesus is the Christ. And, um, but then other moments, you know, where Jesus has to call him Satan and rebukes him. Other moments where he denies that he even knew him uh, because people are questioning him. And life is like that. We have, we have highs and lows. But guys, I, I, all I want to say this morning is that, and what Peter's going to call us to, is, is that in the end, and I just, I just felt a real burden this past week as I was going through this passage and preparing for this morning, is that I wonder if there's some people this morning that are here, and in, in this season of your life, you're in a season where you've got to decide whether or not you're going to double down. Whether or not, again, and, and listen, you, you're going to have to, you, you did it once before, you, you've done it several times before, you're going to have to do it again, and this won't be the last time either. 
but where you got to make another decision. Are you going to stick with Jesus? Or are you just going to, maybe sometimes, you know, it's, it's a thing where things get difficult and things don't work out the way that we thought that they were going to work out with whatever it is in, in, in any area of life. Um, and maybe it's not a thing where you're just going to openly walk away, where you're just going to, where you're just going to um, say that you no longer believe in him, as some people do, but, but maybe you're just going to begin to draw back. Maybe you're just going to begin to just, just do the comfortable Christian life. Where, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not going to give Jesus everything. You're going to hold back part of your heart from him. And what Peter's going to tell us this morning and, and what he told us there in that passage as we read is that Jesus just does not give us that option, folks. He wants every bit of us all the time in increasing measure more and more and more. Um, and I want to call us this morning uh, again, and I apologize that it's a, it's a poker term, but it's all I got for an illustration. But we got to double down. We got to double down on Jesus. Because um, he's risen and he's Lord. Um, and he deserves absolutely everything as he's been speaking already this morning. One of the greatest things, of course, as I already said, that will, that will cause you to question whether or not you're going to go all in on Jesus or double down on him is suffering, suffering of some sort. And of course, throughout the letter, uh, this is what Peter has been addressing. He's writing to a people that have been suffering and are on the brink of even more suffering to come. So it's just getting started, uh, but it's not going away anytime soon. In fact, the suffering is going to increase. And what, what Peter's been telling him over and over and over again is to hold fast, to remember what Jesus Christ has done and preaching the gospel to them and reminding them of all the good news. Uh, but really the heart of the letter, um, like if you had to pick just one verse out of the entire five chapters uh, of this letter, I think the uh, verse 15, which is in this passage that I read a little bit ago, uh, would kind of sum up the entire, the entire book. And so let's look at it again. Uh, I'll start again in verse 13. But now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So again, there's people threatening to harm them. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And here it is, verse 15. But in your hearts, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now here's what's unique about that. And I pointed this out before because this is not the only place that the Bible does this, but don't miss this, is that, guys, he is commanding something to happen inside of you. You understand that? Many times the Bible will give us commands, we've talked about these for the last several weeks, like, like outwardly doing, like bless people, serve people, submit to people, honor the emperor, honor your wife, honor your husband, serve your spouse. We, we, we do those things, but here, God's word through Peter, and in many other places, he's commanding something to happen in your heart. You're like, how is that, how is that possible? Because I can't, you know, we feel like we can't, we can't touch that. We feel like we, like, like, we can't, like we can't do that. But the Bible does it. Over and over and over again, the Bible commands us. I, I mean, how much are we to love God? Remember the passage, the great commandment? What does the Bible command in regards to our love to God? How much are we to love him? Remember? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, is that the Bible commands us to feel something. The Bible commands us something inwardly to happen. And the quick explanation for how these things are reconciled is that whatever God commands, God also supplies the grace in order for us to carry that out. But we have to acknowledge what is true in our hearts. God, help us to be honest this morning. God help us to be honest this morning about who or what or whatever is truly on the throne in your hearts. Because the command this morning is that Jesus Christ would be on the throne and he would be on the throne alone. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now listen, nobody makes him Lord, okay? There's a sense in which, like nobody makes him Lord. What I mean by that is, he is Lord, 
Well, you're not making him Lord. He, he holds your very breath in his hand. He's king of all. He's risen over everything. He is Lord. So when, when Peter's saying here, but honor him as Lord, he's not like he is Lord, but what he's wanting is for you, us to acknowledge him as Lord. And it's a very, like, kind of, uh, it's a hard phrase to kind of pin down and understand exactly what he's talking about, but I want to do some, do some digging here. Let me read just a couple different English translations. Um, and again, sometimes one of the things that's good about reading different English translations is you'll see that things are worded different ways. And when you see things worded, a lot of times uh, certain verses that are worded different ways, you'll know that there's something there in the original language that they're probably like kind of grasping at to explain as best they can in English, but the full meaning doesn't come across, and that can be kind of a sign to dig in and to understand it more. But let, let me read verse 15 in a couple different translations. Again, the ESV, which I'm reading out of, says, says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. The NASB says, but sanctify. Sanctify means to set apart. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The NIV says, but in your hearts revere. So you've got honor, sanctify, revere Christ as Lord. Uh, the Amplified Version says, but in your hearts set Christ apart as holy, acknowledging him, giving him first place in your lives as Lord. Uh, the, the message version, which isn't really a translation, it's more of just a paraphrase, but, but I actually like what it says here. The message version says, through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ, your master. Is your heart at attention this morning? Is your heart caught up in adoration to Jesus this morning? See, what Peter's calling for here is, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Nobody's changing that. You cannot like it. It doesn't matter. He's Lord. He created you. He is the same. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the same one that, that put all the stars in the heavens, that it was through him that everything that we see is created. He is Lord, but is he on the throne of your heart this morning? Are you honoring him as as Lord? And what he's calling for here in adoration, in revering, in setting apart, in sanctifying, in honoring him as Lord, I think is very helpful. Um, because here's, here's how you get there if you're not. What Peter is, is telling us is not to somehow, in some way we don't fully understand, like to put him on the throne and then worship him. He's telling us that we put Christ on the throne day by day by worshiping him. Does that make sense? Like, how do I put Christ on the throne of my heart? Wah, okay, and then I'm going like, to, like, how does that happen? We put him there with our worship. We put him there by every morning waking up and saying, Jesus, you are Lord today, and just beginning to thank him for who he is and what he's done. You guys know that this idea of worship and, and continual worship, like it's a big thing for me and I want it to be a big thing for us as a church and not just because me, because, but because I see it like in the Bible. Um, and here's just one more place where, where you see this. But for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know our mission statement, that our mission statement is to help every person, what? Continually worship Jesus. Why? Because that's what each and every single one of us was made to do. Each and every single one of us was made to worship Jesus, but each and every one of us puts other things on the throne of our heart. Each and every one of us worships other things day by day and hour by hour and moment by moment throughout those days. And it's called idolatry. But the bottom line is you can't not worship. You were made to worship. You were made to worship. And what Peter's saying is wake up every morning. And even if you lose it somewhere during the morning or before you even get to work or before you even make it to your coffee maker in the kitchen, again and again and again, begin to worship him and thank him for who he is. Psalm 100 uh, says it like this, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now listen, it, it, like the idea, the picture that he puts forth of how we approach him. He says, come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Then it says this, enter his gates. So come into his presence with singing, verse four, and then enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And the question, again, that I just want to ask this morning is who's Lord right now? 
in your heart. You can't answer for anybody else. You don't need to answer for anybody else, but you need to answer for you. Who is Lord right now? Who have you been worshiping as you've come into this place this morning? And again, as we've already sung, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Um, and he deserves every, every bit of us. Three questions in this text, in this passage here, quickly, um, to help us diagnose whether or not Jesus is Lord this morning, whether or not he's on the throne of your heart. Number one, are you ever mocked or ridiculed because of your hope in Jesus? Again, this is the context of the whole letter, but verses 13 and 14 and a little bit of 16, like, who is there to harm you? Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, okay, so you're not just suffering randomly, but you're suffering because of your faith in Jesus. Verse 16 says that we want to have a good conscience so that when we are slandered or reviled, okay, uh, does anybody ever speak bad about you because of your faith in Jesus? And again, I know sometimes, guys, we say, well, that would never happen to us around here because, you know, like everybody grows up in church and, uh, you know, the same people that are, you know, out partying or whatever on Friday and Saturday nights, they're also in church Sunday morning. So, you know, we all want to say that we're Christian because it's good for us, you know. It can help your business grow. It can help you, you know, make those connections that you need to make in your social circles by saying that you're, that you're a Christian. Yeah, but... But I want to push back on that a little bit, is that the Bible says that, like Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, all those, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And while I admit that in America and in our context, we're not going to be beaten for it, if you look at the context, again, like in verse 16, it, there was physical persecution going on of these Christians, but also one of the things that they were facing was just verbal abuse. He says, again, verse 16, when you are slandered, when you were reviled. He's talking about people speaking, speaking ill of you. You know, kind of like that old cliche question that's always asked, you know, when you talk about stuff like this, is like, is that if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Yeah, have you guys heard that before? Um, and again, one of the ways we can tell as to whether or not we're consistently living with Jesus on the throne of our hearts, is that, guys, at times, people are going to oppose you. They're going to mock you. Um, and many times, we know that that could be the case, and so we're very careful with who we let know that Jesus is Lord. But see, if you're playing games where you only let certain people know that Jesus is Lord and don't let everybody know that Jesus is Lord, then he's not actually Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Secondly, are people asking you about the hope that you have? Again, verse 15, after he says, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Is it like one of the ways you can know that Jesus is on the throne is that people are, some people are going to get mad about it, some people are going to want to mock you, other people are going to want to know about what you have that they don't have. Now, again, we'll spend a little bit of time on this in a little bit, but like, you know, uh, this idea of always being prepared to make a defense, I'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but like, again, he, he says, get ready to make a defense, but why? Because people are supposed to be asking about the hope that is in you. And we always, like, we always want to talk about like apologetics and, and defending the faith, and, um, and we kind of like just want to jump into that, but the context of jumping into that, like we should be able to defend the faith but the reason we should be able to defend it is because people are asking about the hope that is within us. When's the last time anybody asked you about the hope that is within you that they obviously don't have but that they see in you? And again, this is nothing special that you have. You're like, what do I need to do? Do I need to go stand on the street corner with a megaphone and you know, wear a, a, a sign you know, on the front and back saying, Jesus is Lord? No, he just has to be on the throne of your heart. You just have to honor him as Lord. Continually adore him as Lord in your heart and people will see it. And third, are you consistently afraid to make it clear that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And here's what I would say is that if you're never ridiculed for your faith and if nobody ever asks you 
for the hope that you have, there's a good chance that you are consistently afraid to make it clear that Jesus is Lord of your life. Again, the end of verse 14, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Are you afraid? Are you afraid of letting certain individuals or certain groups of people, or are there certain social circles, whether it may, you know, just the, the buddies you play softball with and hang out with, or, um, or the people that you work with, or the people that you run into, you know, at, at your kids' sports games or whatever. Are there certain people where, yeah, Jesus is Lord here, but he's not over here. That's not what he's calling for. He's calling us to, to, ha- to honor Jesus as Lord in every area of your life. Um, and again, I want to tie this in now with that little phrase. He says, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. So the Greek word here is apologia. It's from where we get the, the English word apologetics. If you're familiar with that term, apologetics is, is it's kind of like just being able to defend the faith, giving reasons for the resurrection. Books like uh, Josh McDowell's, uh, you know, evidence that demands a verdict and more than a carpenter and, 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 and you know, other um, kind of a seminary level, you know, books that are written about how we can, you know, have faith in the Bible and all that type of stuff. And listen, all those types of things are good, okay? But here's what I want to press on for a little bit this morning is that I run into so many Christians that use their, they defend their lack of witness, they defend their lack of letting people know about the hope that is in them because they always say, well, I just don't know enough. I'm just not able to defend the faith. I just, ha- I, I don't know. I'm not real good at apologetics. Like, I don't have a lot of proof. I'm afraid that people ask me hard questions. And here's what I want to say this morning is that um, airtight intellectual arguments um, are not the key to being an effective witness. They're not. The key to being an effective witness is having Jesus continually sit on the throne of your heart. That's what makes you an effective witness. One of my favorite stories in John chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read a little bit of it and sum it up for you. But John chapter 9, you have this man that was born blind. And the disciples see this guy and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, neither. This is for, this is for the glory of God. And so Jesus um, you know, makes this little uh, mud pie, you know, puts it on his eyes and tells him, and tells him to go wash, and, uh, and so uh, he does this, and this man who was born blind, ever, just from birth, um, goes, and all of a sudden now he can see. Well, Jesus does this on the Sabbath, which of course ticks off the Pharisees and the religious folks, um, and so there's, you know, there's like this instant investigation of the religious folks, like going, who did this? Who healed you? And they're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath, and you know, there's not supposed to be any work being done, and, and so they be, begin to hold this investigation. They interview the man that was, uh, that was born blind, but that can now see, and they don't really believe him, so then they go and get his parents, uh, and they interview his parents, and they're like, is this your son? And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is our son, and, but you know, we don't know how he can see because they were afraid of the religious folks. Jesus wasn't sitting on the throne of their hearts yet, and so they're kind of afraid. They're like, don't ask us. Like, he's, he's, he's an adult. Like, ask him how it happened. So then they bring the man that was born blind back in a second time, and they questioned him. And uh, in John uh, 9, then verse 17, it says, and so they began to, to question again the blind man. He said, what do you say about him, about Jesus, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of the man uh, who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? And, you know, like I said, the parents say all this. And then they call him back in the second time, jumping down to verse 24. He says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And here's, I, I love this guy's response. Such a classic response. I'm sure you've heard this verse. But the man who was born blind, who can now see, is, says he answered. Again, he's, in a sense, it's a picture, he's defending his faith. It's defending the change that has happened in his life. And he answered and he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know, because he hadn't even met him yet, like he doesn't know. And obviously his theology wasn't real great, like because Jesus wasn't a sinner. But he goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now I see. See, this guy 
didn't have a real airtight intellectual argument as to why his life had been changed, as to why he believed in Jesus. And hear me, I'm all for studying and being able to defend the faith. And man, there's so much proof um, that the resurrection happened. And our, our faith is not built upon, um, it's not a house of cards that's just ready to topple. Um, but at the same time, you don't need to know all that to be an effective witness, to give a reason for the hope that is in you, folks. What you have to attest to is simply that I'm not maybe really sure about all the questions that you're asking, but I know this, is that he changed me. He changed me. And I just want to let you guys know this morning that, guys, that is enough. That is enough. That if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you know that you've been brought from darkness to light, if you know that you've been set free, if you remember what it was once like to live in darkness but now be in his marvelous light, that's enough. Your story matters. Your changed life matters. And at the very least, all that, that Peter is calling for and that God wants from us is for us to be unashamed of that and to let the world know. But it starts by moment by moment by moment, having him on the throne of our hearts. And Peter's going to go on here and, and, and quickly in this, in this last couple of verses, verses 18 through 22, and now he's going to point us back to Jesus again. And man, this is what discipleship is all about. This is what a, a good pastor should do, and I, and I hope that, that I can do this in some way in modeling after Jesus and, and, uh, and Peter and Paul and these, and these guys, is that all he's going to do again and again throughout this letter is point you back to Jesus and back to his example and to everything that we've been talking about, that Jesus gave absolutely everything, and he demands, he deserves absolutely everything from us. And so verse 18, he says, for, for Christ suffered once for sin. This is what he's been hammering away at over and over and over again in this letter, is that yes, they're suffering, but don't forget that Christ also suffered. Yes, it's difficult following Jesus. It can be difficult being a disciple, but it was difficult for Jesus and the reason that we need to go all in on Jesus is because Jesus went all in with everything that he had. He doubled down on the will of the Father and going to the cross. And even though it was hard in the Garden of Gethsemane to the place where he was sweating drops of blood and he said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please do it. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And over and over, just quickly, throughout the book, I don't know if you've noticed this, but chapter 1 Verse 11, speaking of these prophets who were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Uh, for, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, but, but Christ is like of a precious, but with the pre you've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 4, verse 1, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. In chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And here in verse 18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. He is the righteous we are the unrighteous. Folks, you never, don't ever, please, when you find your heart growing cold to what Jesus has done for us, be quick to repent of that. I pray that God would make us a church where we are so quick to search our hearts and to repent of ever hearing the gospel that the righteous died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and we sit there unmoved. 
Most of you guys probably don't know this, but in kind of in a lot of like I don't know Christian theological circles and debates today, there's a great debate over what is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal referring to what penalty. Penal substitutionary atonement that Christ paid the penalty for our sins um, by becoming a substitute and atonement that He paid for our sins. And there's many people that are very smart, very brilliant, a lot smarter than I am, um, that acknowledge a lot of true things about Jesus and about what he did. Yet they deny this aspect of penal substitutionary atonement. They deny this fact that on the cross, what it's essentially saying is that Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve. And what they say is that, you know, yeah, Jesus died, and, and we were, we were kind of bad, but we weren't that bad, because, you know, why would God, it doesn't make any sense that, you know, God would pour out his punishment on, on his son when his son hadn't done anything. And kind of the, the pithy little illustration they'll use is, you know, like, like, well, like for me with my boy, like if Ephraim does something bad, I'm not going to go punish Rowan. You wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't do that, but that's exactly what God did for us. Because if he would not have done it, there would be absolutely no way that any of us could be saved. On the cross, Jesus bore somehow for all time the punishment in hell that we deserve forever for rebelling against him. In Isaiah 53, there's just no way around it. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And it says in Psalm, Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, that it was the Lord's will to crush him. Not because Christ had been disobedient, but because we had been disobedient. And I think that, I don't know, I just think that we're so quick to forget that what Jesus did on the cross, he didn't do just because we made a couple mistakes. He didn't do it um, just because we were a little bit messed up and just needed a little bit of help. Or that we're trying to do the right thing and we just needed an example of what it looks like to serve people. What he did on the cross was bear the wrath of God that each and every one of us deserved. the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? The next line, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus paid everything so that we could be near to him. So that we could be near to God. And and every day, the, the primary thing that we chase is not that. We're, we're so busy chasing anything but the very thing that Christ came to die for, that we could be near to God, that we could have fellowship with Him, that we could know Him, that when we don't know what to do, that we can come boldly and confidently before his throne of grace. Why? Because the righteous died for the unrighteous. He paid the penalty, folks. But he did serve as an example. Um, but before he's ever our example, before he's ever our standard, he is always first and foremost our substitute and our sacrifice. 
And I pray that our hearts are never not moved when we hear it. Amen? He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I just close with the key. Put that passage up there, uh, whoever's back there, Josh, the end, this passage that I'm reading right now, where I've underlined it. Um, this is where I'm, I'm going to come back next week and talk about verse 19, 20, and 21, uh, because uh, it just takes some time, um, and it's kind of a highly debated passage of what exactly he's talking about. Um, but there's some really, really good stuff in it. I want to spend a whole sermon on it. But, but I just want to show you the flow of thought here that as Peter is calling them to make Jesus Lord of their life, to honor them, honor him as Lord, to worship him continually in their hearts. He's given these two reasons, and he, he says in verse 18, you know, what I just read, that the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then he follows this train of thought that we'll look at next week, talking about Noah and um, baptism and all this, but then he picks back up with Jesus at the end of verse 21, the underlined part, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and also verse 22, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And I'll just end with this. Worship team, you can come up. We'll begin to close. Um, but yeah, that Jesus is our example. And to be sure, I, I mean, I want to be clear, like it, it's absolutely radical it is radical. It demands that you be willing to live a radical life to make Jesus Lord of your life and in your heart and to worship him continually and to give him everything. But even though it's radical, I'm telling you, it is the most logical thing that you could ever possibly do. Or to put it the other way, it's illogical to not have him be Lord of your life. Because verse 22, even though he suffered and he's our example through the resurrection of Christ, but he has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers that are now subjected to him. And let me tell you why that's good news. is because the same Jesus who Peter is commanding us to worship continually, to be Lord in our hearts, to set him apart, and to let everybody know that he's Lord of our life, he is the same Jesus who has all authority over anything that could ever come against you. All powers all authorities. That means all, all angels, all demons, but also all earthly authorities. In their case, Nero, Roman army that were coming after them. The same Jesus who wants to be Lord of your life is the same Jesus who is Lord over every life anyway. And guys, it is such good news. And we can rest in the fact that when he's on the throne of our hearts, He's also on the throne of the whole universe. <laughs> and so you don't have to be afraid. There is nothing, nothing that can come against you that is outside of his control. Isaiah says there is no weapon that is formed against you that will ever prosper. Nothing. And so I end this morning just wanted to say like, please, please, on the basis of what Christ has done and on the basis of, of his sacrifice, but also just simply on the basis of logic. Why would you not make him Lord? Why would you not pursue every day having him and him alone sit on the throne of your heart? Amen. Just bow your heads with me. Um, as, as we wrap up here, I just, you know, over the last uh, several weeks, you guys know that Hannah and I moved a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that moving will do is it causes you to take inventory of everything that you own. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, uh, there's closets and corners of the basement uh, and attic, things in the attic that you forgot you had, and when you find them, you're confused as to why you ever kept them. <laughs> and I'm just praying right now, and I'm just gonna trust the Holy Spirit just to do a work in each one of our hearts as we close here, <laughs> that he would just come in and just cause us to take inventory of our hearts. <laughs> guys, any area that he brings to your mind right now where he most definitely is not Lord 
Here's all I want you to do this morning. I just want you to be honest about it. I want you to be honest in your heart and I want you to confess it before him. Father, we love you and we thank you and we thank you for your shed blood. God, as, uh, as we come again, Lord, to take of your broken body and your shed blood, we ask, Father, that you would make us wholly yours. Make us wholly yours. I know we're going to have to make this decision again and again and again, but Father, help us to make it today. Help us to not leave here this morning without declaring that you are Lord, and joyfully so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me. Uh, If you're helping serve communion, you can come.